Hal Lindsey, Doctrines of Salvation, number 15, The Security of the Believer. All right, the doctrine of security. The security of the believer is a much misunderstood doctrine. There are three basic views about it. The first view says that once a person truly believes in Jesus Christ, that he cannot be lost thereafter. Another view says that once a person believes in Christ, all of his sins for the past are forgiven, and the consequences of being born a sinner are forgiven, but that he has to cooperate with God and he has to work for God or else he will be lost. So it's sort of a, uh, that one is sort of a mutual assistance program. All right, there's a third view which says, that once a person believes in Christ, he's forgiven, but if he chooses not to believe later, he'll be lost. That last one is commonly known as the Wesleyan view. The second one is commonly known as the... Uh, Arminian view, and the first was known as uh, generally the Calvinist view. All right, what is it? Do you want it spelled out again? All right, the first view is that once a man believes in Christ, that is, he genuinely believes, he has a true saving faith, that he can never be lost again. The second view is that when a man believes in Christ, his past sins are forgiven, and he is forgiven for being born a sinner. Original sin is forgiven. That's commonly known, well, the Catholics usually have this view. They're the, they're the most prominent exponents of this. And uh, the third view is what is commonly called the Wesleyan view, which really wasn't Wesley's view, but he got his name tacked on it. Uh, it is this, that when a man believes in Christ, he's forgiven, but if he should stop believing in Christ, since he could choose to be saved, he could choose not to be saved. So... This makes faith salvation. In other words, salvation is, uh, is your faith. Now, the first one, I believe, is the only one the Scripture teaches. The others are inconsistent with what the Scripture teaches. The first view is simply, again, I'll state it, 
clearly as I can. Once a person has seen his helplessness to please God, and by faith receives the gift of pardon which Christ died in his place to provide, really working theology into this de definition, so every word's important. The person that, saving faith involves seeing you're helpless to gain God's acceptance on the one hand. On the other hand, you simply receive a gift of pardon which Christ died in your place to, to provide. Once that has been done, then you cannot thereafter be lost. The reason is that faith does not save you. Faith is the way through which we accept salvation, but faith is not salvation. So our salvation doesn't depend upon our faith. It depends upon Christ. You accept a finished work of salvation which Christ died to bring about. And so faith is just a means of accepting a total work of God which is built on the death of his own beloved Son. So faith is not that which saves. Faith is that which receives salvation. The so-called Wesleyan view says that uh, faith itself is the salvation. Because you believe, you're saved. If you stop believing, you're not saved. Well, it is true that in the Scripture one who has been saved will keep on believing. But the reason is because he's been saved, not vice versa, because the saving work of Christ, as you learned yesterday, involves the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and a new nature. And this new nature has as a part of its very essence the spiritual perception of faith. And it's a part. It's, faith is a gift of God. Romans chapter 12, please. Page 272, Romans chapter 12. given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So this shows that, that the faith in your Christian life is allotted to you. And the idea here is that God has a definite plan for your life. That's the whole context of Romans 12. God has this wonderful plan for your life, and he has allotted to you at the moment of salvation all the faith that is necessary to claim every asset that's been freely given to you to, to totally fulfill that plan. Now, if you don't use the faith, that's your fault, but God has given it. So don't always go around with the idea, boy, if I just had more faith, 
You've got all you need. Just look at the object. It's the faithfulness of the one that you believe in that makes faith valid, not faith itself. It's not how much you believe. It's how faithful is the one in whom you believe. And uh, faith is totally object-centered, as the Bible uses the term. Okay, I want to give several reasons for why once a person believes in Christ, he cannot thereafter be lost. The first is the finished work of Christ because of the finished work of Christ. Now this is what we've been studying for now on three weeks. Now here's the Here's the issue right here. The faith that saves is a faith that is operative as an act at a point of time. Salvation occurs at a point of time, not over a process. The faith that saves is that faith which looks at what Christ did for us on the cross, and we usually don't understand very much of that when we're saved, very little. But we just see Christ as the one who provided a pardon for our sins and we believe. All right, at the minute that I believe, I see I can't tear this barrier down, but Christ has he's bridged the chasm, he's torn the barriers down. Then in that moment that I believe, God is set free to apply all of this once and for all which has already been paid for by the finished work of Christ. So the moment that I believe, all of these things as they're set forth in the Scripture are in the aorist tense or the perfect tense, which means it's something that happens all at once, once and for all. So the finished work of Christ is the basis upon which God applies all of these things to the one at the point of salvation, the point of believing. And the reason he can do it is because of what Christ did on the cross. There's absolutely nothing that can stop God from declaring us as righteous as he is the moment we believe. There's nothing that can stop God from identifying us with Christ so much that God sees us as he does his son. Our life is hidden with Christ in God so that when I sin, he sees me just as he sees his son. And he does not count my sins against me, therefore. I am forgiven all sins, past, present, and future. I'm given freedom from the authority of the old nature. I'm given uh, freedom from the jurisdiction of God's holy law. I am given a new life. The scripture never says you must be born again and again and again and again. You can only be born again once because you're given the life of God. And it's impossible to snuff out God's life. And this life is described, the, the life that is given in regeneration is, is described by a descriptive, temporal adjective, eternal. Now, eternal means eternal. It says that when you believe, you receive at that point eternal life. 1 John 5 brings this out forcefully. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. These things have I written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, 
that you might know that you have eternal life. Now, the eternal life means unceasing. It's a quality of life, but that, that word primarily talks about the duration of it. All right, regeneration, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It happens all at once. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is God's guarantee that he will bring you into his presence. You're adopted as an adult son, which means God commits all of his wealth to you. All of his wealth is given to you as a divine operating asset, and you have the right to draw upon God's assets. So the finished work of Christ, is the ground upon which at the moment of salvation all of these things are given once and for all. It's a work of God, something we can't even enter into. All right, the second reason, because of the will of the Father, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning with the 37th verse. Page 164. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, or more literally, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now what is the will of the one who sent Christ? In verse 39, we have the divine viewpoint. In verse 40, we have the human viewpoint of the divine will. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is probably the greatest security passage in the scripture right here, because it's a, it's a progress from eternity past to eternity future. Now, verse 37, we start with eternity past, and I want you to, if you mark your Bible, and you should, to circle the word all at the beginning of verse 37. And the word all in verse 39 and the word everyone in verse 40 because there is one group that is spoken of all the way through here. Now the first thing we learn about the group is in verse 37. The Father gives them to the Son. And John chapter 17 defines this. They were given to the Son before the world was created. Their love gift, all that God saw would believe in his Son were given to him before the world was created as a love gift of the Father to the Son. Now he says, that happened in the past. Now in time it says, those who were given to me will come to me. 
And once they have come to him, he says, he will not cast them out. The word here, cast out, means to cast from within out. It means they're already in and he will not cast them out. They're in Christ. So here we have the group given in the, given in the past and in the process of time they come to Christ and once they come to Christ he says, I'll never cast them out. All right, now, then he, said, he, he explains why he won't cast them out in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. He will never cast them out once they come to him at a point of time because of what the Father sent him to do. Now in verse 39, he explains what the Father sent him to do. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all, now this is the same group described by all in verse 37 who were given in the past to Christ. All that he has given me, I lose nothing, or more literally, not even one, but raise it up on the last day. Now, here is the significance of this verse to you. If at a point of time, by faith you come to Christ, then if at the day of resurrection you are missing, then Christ did not fulfill the will of the Father. Do you get the point? In other words, it's unthinkable that Christ would not fulfill what God sent him to do. He came to fulfill God's will, and he says that will is that everyone who comes to me in faith will be raised up on the last day. If there's one missing, then Christ did not fulfill the will of the Father. So our salvation is made to depend here upon whether Christ fulfilled the will of the Father or not. And the divine side of it is given in verse 39. All that he has given me depends on being given to, God, uh, given to Christ that he would lose nothing but raise him up on the last day. And then verse 40, looking at it from the perspective of time. For this is the will of the Father that everyone who beholds the Son, this is the idea of seeing him with recognizing who he really is, and believes in him, may have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now the one who sees who the Son is and just simply believes in him, Christ says I'll raise him up on the last day. All right, that's uh, reason number two. Reason number three, John chapter 10. The holding power of Christ. The holding power of Christ. Have y'all gotten to John chapter 10 yet? Did you go through the stockade? The uh, sheepfold stockade on which this passage was built? Yeah, you did. I'm sure Dave must have taught you that. But anyway, this chapter 10 is built on the analogy of a real thing that still goes on in Palestine. And that is, every significant village in Palestine has a sheep stockade. And the sheep are all put into one compound. Here comes one shepherd, and he puts his sheep in there. 
here comes another shepherd and he puts his sheep in there. And they're all mixed up. And here comes another shepherd and he puts his sheep in there. Now, the sheep have no brands. No notched ears, no brands, nothing. They all look the same. But the shepherd has taught his sheep to respond to a certain musical call that he has. Now, in the morning, when, when the shepherd comes, he's left his sheep in there all night, the shepherd will come and identify himself to the doorkeeper. There's always just one door so no one can steal sheep. And there's a doorkeeper there. When the shepherd comes and identifies that he has a right, that he has sheep there, and he identifies he has the right to call them out, then the doorkeeper opens the door, and the shepherd stands at the door, and he makes this certain sound. And when he makes that certain sound, every sheep that belongs to him comes out. And the sheep that don't belong to him will not come out. They will not follow a strange shepherd. They know that certain sound and they'll come out. And this is what is called following the shepherd. Now, with that background, this is what Jesus says in John 10, verse uh, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, the word, when it says they follow me, it means that when the call is made, which is the gospel, they will follow it in the sense that they will believe it. And when they do, they're brought out of the stockade, which is a picture of the bondage to sin. And so the shepherd leads them out, and they follow him, and when they come out, then Jesus says, they come out by the point of time when they believe in the gospel, he says, I give eternal life to them. First, the shepherd makes the call. The sheep hear the call and come out. And he says, at that point, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one essence, literally. Now what he is saying here is that the, the, the salvation of these sheep depends upon the shepherd and not upon the sheep. It isn't that we hold on to the shepherd, it's that the shepherd holds on to us. And it all begins when we hear the sound and come out. That's a picture of believing in Christ. And so your salvation depends on the holding power of Christ. And he's, he's got the power. It says that, that the, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, it says the heavens are the work of your hands. If you want to know the power of the hand that has hold of you, look at the universe. Because it's the power, as Colossians 1.17 says, that holds the atoms together. Colossians 1.17 says not only did Christ create everything, 
but he holds all things together. If you take a, a moving picture of a hydrogen bomb exploding and then you run it backwards in slow motion, you'll see the power of Christ that was, that was split, the power that holds a few atoms of hydrogen together. Because a hydrogen explosion is simply the splitting of a few hydrogen atoms. And scientists today do not know what it is that holds those neutrons and protons together. The Bible says it's the power of Christ that holds them together. He's the universal glue. And he, he is the one with all of that power. He's the one that holds you. All right, the fourth reason is that salvation is on the basis of grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And have been saved is a, is a perfect tense verb a perfect tense verb which is uh, connected with a present infinitive to be. Now what that means is that you have been saved in the past with results that just go on continuing, that cannot stop. And so you've been saved in the past with results you go on being saved by grace, through faith, and that, not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And uh, this shows that salvation is totally on the basis of grace. Now, all you have to do to show that, that grace, since it is on a grace basis, that it cannot be broken by human effort, is to show Romans 11:6, where it says, And if it be by grace, then is it no more of works, lest grace be no more grace. Yes perfect tense connected with a verb in a verb to be in the present tense in other words they're joined together it's a perfect tense participle joined with this verb to be and it's the strongest way of showing uh, something has uh, unbreakable continuing results yes sir a good question when it says that not of yourself is that referring to faith no it's not not faith alone uh, let me check something here my testament in verse 8 of Ephesians for by grace alright grace is in the feminine gender through faith faith is in the masculine gender and that not of yourself that is in the neuter gender. Now, the rule of Greek grammar is that uh, if you have a relative pronoun or demonstrative pronoun, 
referring back to a specific word, then it has to agree in gender with that word, you see. But here we have two words, grace and faith, and the gender agrees with neither. Now this was a neat little device in Greek syntax that when you didn't want to refer to just one, but you wanted to refer to everything, you would put it in, in a different gender than, than both. So what it means is that not of yourself, it means the salvation is not of yourself, the grace is not of yourself, and the faith is not of yourself. It's all of God. So that's a grammatical, uh, conclusive argument. Uh, all right, the, th uh, are we on the fifth reason? The fifth reason is union with Christ. Because of our union with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Page 264. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. Now the reason that there cannot be condemnation for the one who's in Christ Jesus is because God sees the person who's in Christ as he sees Christ himself. And Christ has already died for the penalty of sin. Therefore, to judge you would be double jeopardy. He can't judge Christ again for what he's already paid. And you're in Christ, and therefore the same is true of you. So there cannot be any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 38 and 39 he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing of which you happen to be one, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love which is objectified in Christ Jesus. And you're in Christ Jesus, so nothing can. And you are a created thing, and you cannot undo what an infinitely omnipotent God has done. To say that your puny little will can change what God has done is the height of egocentricity. You are a created thing. And the point is, who, God doesn't want to. It was his love that went after you when you were his enemy anyway. So why does he want to cast you out now that you're a child? So he shows that nothing can break that union. Now, uh, there is a verse which really brings out our union with Christ. You know, in Ephesians 5.30 it says that we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bone. But in, uh, on page 361, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, 
this hand may do things that I don't want it to do, but I can't deny it's my hand and I'm not going to cut it off. It's part of my body. Now that's the meaning of this verse here. Though we may be faithless at times, he cannot deny himself, and you are himself. You are members of Christ. Someone has said, uh, well, you know, Christ holds us with his hand, but we might slip through his fingers. And I say, well, listen, buddy, we are his fingers. You see, we are part of Christ, and he cannot deny himself. Yes, so here. Yes, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. The denying is the denial of rewards, as per 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, where it says, if a man's works do not abide the test, he'll suffer loss. And also there is a special reward promised to those who endure suffering by faith. It says, for instance, Christ brings this out. He says, those who have been faithful in five things, I'll make ruler over five cities. Those who have been faithful in ten things, I'll make ruler over ten things. So our co-regency with Christ in eternity is based upon the fact that I simply depend upon the Holy Spirit in uh, my daily life. So there are rewards, definitely. And our rewards are conditioned upon the fact, do I see that I can't do nothing <laughs> and uh, I depend upon the Holy Spirit? So in context, that's what he's talking about. But he says if we're faithless, which means that we don't earn anything, he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. And uh, let's see, another one, number six. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the sixth reason why once you've believed you cannot lose it. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 through 14 which we took up yesterday which says that at, when you heard and believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the down or the God's guarantee until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is God's guarantee to us that we can't be lost. And the seventh is the priesthood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25, or 24 and 25. The priesthood of Christ. That would be page 377, which says this, But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now the point of this verse is that in order for us to be lost, Christ would have to die. As long as Christ is alive, he saves to the uttermost those who come to God through him. But in order for that priesthood to stop, he would have to die. So as long as that priesthood is going, those who have believed in him will be secure. And he's, it says he lives forever, so therefore we're secure. All right, number eight. 
the immutability of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34, which we've also covered in the justification, doctrine of justification, it simply shows in that passage that it says, who is the one who condemns? Well, there's only one who has a right to condemn the Christian, and that's God. And it shows that he can't condemn because he is the one who declared us as righteous as he is. Now, for him to reverse that decision would mean he would compromise his attribute of immutability, which is an impossibility. God cannot compromise any attribute. So he shows that our salvation depends on the immutable declaration of righteousness which is given at the moment of salvation. Now, what is the, it's an illustration of the significance of this. Why is this doctrine important? Well, I believe that this is not just another truth of the Bible, but one of the most foundational truths of the whole book. What a man feels on this tells me what his theology is. I ask one test question of a man, and I can tell you just about what his theology is. And I just simply ask him, if a man makes a profession of faith and he falls away, how would you evaluate that? Now, if he tells me that that man was saved and he was lost, then that tells me he knows nothing about the finished work of Christ on the cross. And the significance of this may be illustrated by the fact if you have a child raised in a home where he's never sure that he's accepted when he fails, then that child is going to grow up unstable, insecure, hostile because he can never measure up to the standard his parents set for him or he thinks they set for him. He grows up thinking the only way he can be accepted by them and by anyone is by performing. No one loves him. He believes he cannot be honest with others in a relationship because a person like this is so insecure that he feels a desperate need to have relationships with people. So if he sees anything that is a threat to that relationship, he'll be dishonest about it and try to explain it away. I mean by that, let's say that you're married to a woman and uh, she lets you know that if there are certain things in your life, then she just will not accept you anymore. And so uh, let's say that one of those things is that uh, you you belch after dinner, for instance. Uh, your wife lets you know that, boy, that just is, is for the birds, and that uh, if you do that, you're just not as acceptable with her as you were. So the guy can't help himself, and he belches. Well, do you think that guy's going to be honest and admit he really did belch? He's going to try to say, well, I couldn't help it, and so forth, you just heard things that didn't really happen. The point that I'm making is this. Unless a person knows he is forgiven past, present, and future sins, and he knows he's accepted with God just as he is completely, then he cannot have an honest relationship with God. When he sins, he's not going to be honest with God about that sin or with himself. He's going to say, well, it really wasn't a sin. It wasn't really my fault. 
he'll pass the blame off. There will be a dishonest relationship with God because he's afraid if he is honest with God that God's not going to accept him quite like he did before. And this gets at the root of why a man has faith. A dynamic faith comes out of knowing that God has already accepted you no matter what you do or don't do. And that God loves you unconditionally. And because you begin to see that God loves you unconditionally, you can trust him. Because you can only trust one that you believe loves you. And so the security of the believer is that which gives us, breaks through our carnal minds and finally convinces us that uh, we're accepted, we're, then God loves us. And so at the root of any really dynamic faith is the security of the believer. Now you may think that uh, these things are not true, but I'll give you a few years and you'll come back and say, I know it's true. Yes. What are some of the verses that are used against eternal security? Well, we went through one the other day, Hebrews 6. That's one of the key passages. And I, I just say that the, the principle that uh, you follow in uh, examining these verses is all important. And that is this, and it's true of any doctrine, whether it's this doctrine or any other. You never build a doctrine on scattered verses. You never build a doctrine on obscure verses. You build doctrine on the clear passages, not on obscure verses. So if you see a verse that seems to suggest something different than, than what the warp and roof of the Bible says, then you should interpret the obscure verse by the passages that are clear, you see? And so you, you must always do this. No matter what truth you're examining, you must always interpret the obscure verses by that which is the main teaching of the Scripture. Now, the doctrine of security of the believer is anchored in the whole book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, in whole passages, and so forth. So when we come to a passage like Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and following, Page 381, this is in a passage where uh, we have one of the greatest passages on forgiveness, past, present, and future in the Word of God. It talks about the finality of the sacrifice of Christ in chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. It says that because Christ has taken the penalty of our sins completely, God has put this covenant into effect. It says... This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their hearts, and upon their mind I will write them. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. The idea is that he would remember them no more against us because of the work of Christ. Now, he is speaking to a group of Hebrews who were raised in Judaism and they all their life had been trained that when they sinned that the, they should bring animal sacrifices, that they were to come to God through the animal sacrifices. So there's a group of people in the Christian community of the Jews 
who did not really believe in Christ's atonement. They were still trusting in the animal sacrifices. And so the warning passage is given in verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that is about Christ being the, the uh, final sacrifice, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, after Christ, there's no more sacrifice. The animal sacrifices no longer are valid because they predicted the coming of Christ. So he goes on to say, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now this was true under the law of Moses. If a man in this life set aside the law of Moses, he was, he was put to capital punishment. And so he says, now, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Now, where most people get in trouble with this passage is they see he was sanctified and they say, well, this must be a believer. But you see, Christ died for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So in a sense, the unbeliever is sanctified also. But if he treads underfoot the blood of Christ and doesn't accept it, then that forgiveness is not applied to him. So here's, here were these Jewish believers who were hanging on to animal sacrifices when they had received the knowledge of the truth that Christ had, had paid for sin and he had fulfilled what those animal sacrifices only predicted. Well, that's one passage. Very quickly, uh, let's look at another, John 15, 6. Page 184. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now this is a passage which describes an allegory walking in the Spirit. And uh, the whole passage is the, the point of the whole passage is bearing fruit, which is something that believers are to do, bear fruit. They're to do it by trusting in Christ, by abiding in him. Now, the word abide is a word which means a continuing in something, and it's also in the present tense, which also means to continue in something. So the idea is, if anyone does not habitually abide in me, or if he is in a habit of not in abiding in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. Now, this is the believer who habitually does not walk by faith depending upon the Holy Spirit. That's the point. This is one who just flat habitually doesn't depend on the Holy Spirit. And it says, He is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, what is the meaning of that? Well, most people, when they read fire, immediately jump from allegory to reality. Now, this fire is no more literal than the fact that you have bark and leaves on you. 
You get the point? This passage says that you are a branch, but I don't see any leaves growing out of your ears, and I don't see any bark for hide. It's an allegory. And it is an allegory which is to show that uh, the life of the vine is communicated into the branch by it simply abiding in a dependent relationship with the vine. That's the way it is with Christ. You abide in a dependent relationship with him. If you do, his life is your life. His life flows into you like the life of a vine flows into the branch. But if you habitually don't do that, then you're going to be removed from the place of fruit bearing. You're going to lose your chance. And this means divine discipline, which ultimately means being taken out of this life. Fire is used as an illustration of divine discipline. Yes, sir. The question is, does this refer also to being saved as through fire? I think it does have, have application to that, yes. In other words, this is divine discipline and also loss of rewards. Yes. Luke 9.62. This will have to be the last one. Luke 9.62. There are many, many other passages that are brought up, but uh, verse 62 is in a passage talking about discipleship, not salvation. And uh, when he talks about putting his hand to the plow and looking back, he's talking about qualifying as disciples to follow him. Well, I think it's strictly talking about discipleship. It says in a passage that talks about this, and salvation is not in view. There are such passages as he that holds out to the end shall be saved. That's in a pa for instance, that's in Matthew 24, for instance. He that holds out until the end shall be saved. That's talking about believers who are in the great tribulation, which is the last seven years before Christ comes back. And it's talking about physical deliverance there. The one who keeps believing to the end shall be delivered by Christ's personal return. Again, it's not talking about eternal salvation. Yes, in the back. What is that? Second Peter 2.20. Well, this will be the absolute last. <laughs> Second Peter 2.20. Uh, that is page uh, 403. For if after they have escaped the defilement of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. And it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow after wash washing returns to wallow in the mire. Now the key to the whole thing is verse 22. You see, this is talking about men who pretend to be ministers of God and are not. They're masquerading as ministers of righteousness, but they're not. 
and their way of life has been cleaned up by the standards of Christianity. But it's only been cleaned up on the outside. Remember what I said, you can wash a pig, but after you wash it up, you turn your back and it'll run back in the mud. Why? Because its nature hasn't been changed. It's only been washed on the outside. A dog returns to his own vomit because that's what a dog does by nature. And that's the illustration of these false teachers of which the church happens to be full right now. There are many good men in the church today, but there are certainly many men who are deliberately and knowingly teaching heresy. And so this is a warning which is aimed at them in the last days, and we're in them. So it says that they turn back to their own vomit. And this is talking about a man who has cleaned himself up on the outside by religion, but he's never believed. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you accept us just like we are and that we don't have to perform to gain acceptance because we cannot improve upon the acceptance of being accepted in the Beloved. We thank you, our Father, that we are free now to simply trust the Holy Spirit to produce in us the kind of life you desire. In Christ's name, amen. This concludes Hal Lindsey's lecture on Doctrines of Salvation, number 15, The Security of the Believer. Please use the fast-forward to the end of this tape. Thank you. And I'm going to keep things oriented around this chart that I have here. A chart on the Christian life divided into three categories. The Christian life has one source, one means, but with many results. And everything's going to be oriented around this chart. I would say that uh, probably one of the greatest problems that Christians have when they begin to live the Christian life is to keep the means and the results separated. They try to put the results over into the means column, and that puts you under law. But uh, all Christians try to put the cart before the horse, use an old proverb, and this is what keeps them defeated. I believe that Billy Graham's analysis of the Christian world today is accurate, except he may have been, he may have missed it a little bit in the percentage. He said that 95% of all Christians live in self-imposed spiritual poverty and defeat. I think it may be a little bit more than that. But certainly it's 95%. And one of the big reasons is the thing we're going to cover today. Now, there's a foundation upon which the Christian life must be constructed. And that foundation is an understanding of what we've been studying for three weeks. We must understand that salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace and that it is already finished. As far as, etern as, far as eternal life is concerned, we have it right now. 
And I might take gas for this, but I'm going to say that security is the foundation stone. Our security in knowing our salvation is the foundation stone for living the Christian life. And so here we have the foundation stone of the finished work of Christ, which is applied once and for all at the moment of salvation by grace through faith. By grace through faith. Now, when it comes to the Christian life, we must realize that we're accepted and that anything we do in the Christian life, we cannot improve that acceptance. Or anything we don't do in the Christian life doesn't diminish that acceptance. That's part of knowing salvation, part of the foundation. Secondly, we must know that we are already forgiven, that God doesn't have two forgivenesses. There's one forgiveness. It was paid for at the cross and it's applied to you at the moment of salvation. Now we can, we are to, in our daily life, as we know we've sinned, to claim that forgiveness, not for God's sake, but for our own. Keep from getting under a guilt complex. Because when we sin as a Christian, God doesn't turn his back on us. We turn our back on him. So if God seems to be farther away than he was, who's moved? That's the question. I saw or heard of a sign yesterday, by the way, that I'll throw in. I think it's a, a good anecdote for all of you. There was a sign up there, and this guy was driving along in Texas, and, and uh, he saw this big sign on the highway. It says, if you were arrested as a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> well, I think that's a good one, don't you? <laughs> well, we want to talk about really getting enough evidence to be convicted today. And uh, so the source of the Christian life, you know, I wrote my thesis and uh, my master's thesis in seminary on one verse of the New Testament, in fact, one verb of one verse. I wrote 80-something pages on it. It was the verb in, the, in Ephesians 5.18, which is translated, uh, be filled. So I wrote a, a whole thesis on the meaning of that Greek word, the Greek verb. And I took it all the way back to the Sanskrit. I traced it all the way through ancient writings. I traced it through Hebrew. I traced it through all of the secular Greek and so forth, through the classical Greek, through the current Greek and everything. And then I traced it through the New Testament. And I found that uh, to be filled with the Spirit, as it's used in that word, verse, means to be controlled by your consent. For a person to fill another person doesn't mean that you unscrew the top of your head and we pour the Holy Spirit in liquid form into you and he fills you up to the top of your head from the bottom of your feet. That isn't the meaning of that word. Used metaphorically. And it means to be controlled by your consent. So whenever you, I use the term be filled with the Spirit, that's what I mean. To be controlled by the Spirit by your consent. And that word is used that way in many ancient writings, not of the Holy Spirit, but of it's used of uh, 
spirits filling other people or possessing them in the Greek classical writings and so forth. Or it's used of uh, some emotion of yours taking control of you, like he was filled with rage. It means that uh, rage took control of you and you allowed it. All right. The source of the Christian life in doing all of this study about this word, I had to trace through the whole New Testament and find out what is the source of the Christian life. That is, what is the power, the cause of it. And consistently, all the way through the Scripture, there is only one source as far as God is concerned of the Christian life, and that's the Holy Spirit. We've already studied how the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within the Christian, the doctrine of the indwelling, The Holy Spirit indwells us at the moment of salvation. But we, in our experience, have to at some time later discover the fact that the Holy Spirit is in us and begin to see how we can release the Holy Spirit to produce the, the Christian life in us. Now, some of our brethren, well-meaning brethren, have said there's such a thing as a second blessing. And they usually say that there's the phenomenon of speaking in other languages and at that point the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you and that from that time on you enter into a victorious life. Well, there's some truth in that. But the fa fatal error is that you don't receive the Holy Spirit at that point and you don't have to speak in tongues to discover the Holy Spirit's in you. As a matter of fact, that usually completely confuses the issue. But the point is that there is a time when we discover that the Holy Spirit is in us as the Holy Spirit reveals him, himself in the Scripture and reveals him, the fact that he's in our life. And we begin to see that the Scripture says that all of the things that are to be in our lives is to be produced by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't care what you're commanded to do in the Scripture. The Scripture says in one place or another that the Holy Spirit is the one who is to do it for you. He is to do it in you. Now, we'll see that when we get over to the result column of the Holy Spirit. But He is said to be the source of every vital thing that is produced in you. All right. But the problem is the means of releasing the Holy Spirit to produce the results. This is where people get confused. Now, the Bible tells us consistently that the just is the justified one is to live by faith. And so we know by the testimony of the Scripture that faith is the means of living the Christian life. But there's a lot of difficulty in discovering what it means to have faith or to believe moment by moment. The faith that brings salvation is a faith which is an act, which, moment, uh, uh, which is at a point of time. It's an act of faith. That brings eternal life. It brings all of the changes in my basic being that are wrought by the indwelling of the Spirit in the new birth. 
So the faith that saves is an act, but the faith that gives victory is an attitude. So this is what the scriptures consistently set forth. But to understand what this attitude of faith really is, God had to give the law. I'd like for you to turn, please, to Romans chapter 7. Today we want to take up God's great school for learning how to believe. In order to go to the school of faith, you have to first go through law school. Romans chapter 7. And this law school is probably the most important truth that you'll ever learn as a Christian. If you don't get this, you'll never have real victory in your life. You'll have an up and down experience, some mountaintops, but a lot of miserable valleys. Romans chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. How many have ever heard John Braun talk on this? Let me see your hands. Well, we've got a fairly good representation, but not quite half. So we're going through law school again for you. All right, as we look into this verse, what are the two things needed for sin to occur in my life as a Christian? What are the two factors in this verse which cause sin? What? The law and the flesh, correct. The sinful passions are simply the expression of the flesh, by the way. Sinful passions means the flesh in action. It's motions of sin in the King James. Sinful passions is that dynamic of sin which comes from the flesh. Now, the sinful passions are aroused by the law. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, it says, The power of sin is the law. In other words, sin actually gets its power from the law. Without the law, sin does not really have power. But it uses the law as a fulcrum to gain force. Now, if we were to build two houses, one on the north side of San Bernardino and one on the south side, and we took, put a plate glass window in each one, build them identical, and we put a sign out in front of the one on the north side which says, Do not throw rocks at window. And we don't put a sign in front of the one on the south side. Which one do you think is going to be broken out first? Well, I can just see that kid walking along right now. Doesn't have rocks on his mind at all. But he sees that sign, do not throw rocks at window, and so he right away starts looking for a rock. I know that... Uh, there is such a thing as reverse psychology, and this is not 
what you want to use as a means of uh, training people by any means, but reverse psychology is a principle which is uh, true. I heard Robert Andrews speak of an illustration which he had proven up in Seattle, so I decided I'd try it too. So not long after that I was studying at home in my study, and uh, one of my little girls came in, Robin, and Robin uh, kept asking me questions, and I kept trying to be polite and, and get her out of the room. But uh, finally, I saw that nothing was going to avail, so I said, Robin, you're going to have to go now because Daddy's in a hurry, and he's got to get this finished. And she just said, I'm not going to go. Well... I could have spanked her, but I decided I was going to see if this principle worked. So I, I thought for a minute, and then I looked at her, and I said, Robin, there's just one thing you can't do. You can do anything else in this room, but there's one thing you can't do. You can't leave. I forbid you to leave this room. <laughs> Boy, she was gone. Now, don't ever raise your children that way. But... Uh, I was just trying it on a one-time basis to see if it worked, and it did. You see, there is the, the, this thing deep down inside of us, which the Bible calls the flesh, which just rebels at law. Now, boy, I'll tell you, the average Christian theologian who otherwise is straight on everything just doesn't get this. In fact, very few Christians ever get this principle that law cannot cause you to obey God. It only makes you rebel. Now, if some people do happen to obey it in the flesh, it's still sin. But law has a nature of stirring up me to do the very thing it tells me not to do. In fact, it gives me the idea. And so the sinful passions stir up this old nature that's within me. And God had to deliver us from the law before we could have a victorious Christian life. Now that's why it says in verse 6, but now we have been released from the law. And the words there is tense, once and for all released from the law. Having once and for all died to that by which we were being bound in perfect tense, which means continuous action in past time. We were being bound before being a Christian. In other words, we have been released from the jurisdiction of the law because we've died with Christ. And it says that we were released from it by, uh, to that by which we were being bound so that, in other words, why were we released from the law? Here's a purpose clause that follows that, which tells why we had to be released from the law so that we could keep on serving, present tense, in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, we're set free from the law for a purpose so that we can serve in the newness of the Spirit. And this is talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which will be developed in Romans 8. So at the outset, I want to tell you something very carefully so that you don't get any hang-ups. If I or any other teacher tell you that you're not under law, you're not under the principle of law, and then don't tell you, but you must be filled with the Spirit, 
then I have promoted anarchy. The only reason that God can tell you you are not under the law, and he's telling you that, is because now you have the Holy Spirit in you, and the Holy Spirit will produce what God wants without a law. And as a matter of fact, if you're under law, the Holy Spirit can't produce what God wants because it keeps stirring that old nature up in you to rebel. And you keep trying to battle the old nature in your flesh and not by the power of the Holy Spirit. So before a person can walk in the Spirit, he must be delivered from the jurisdiction of the law. The reason is because it keeps stirring up those sinful passions to rebel, and actually when a person is under the principle of the law, his old nature will control him. Now that's why it says in Romans 6, 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law as a principle, but under grace as a principle. Now if you're under law, sin will reign over you. Sin will have be master over you. But if you're under grace, it will not be master over you. There are only two ways to approach God. Now, this is true whether you're approaching God for salvation or whether you're approaching God moment by moment for victory in the Christian life. Only two ways. By your own efforts or by depending on the Holy Spirit's efforts. By works or by faith. Now, if you approach God on basis of human effort, then you are under the principle of law because works are founded on the basis of law, of, of law. If you approach God on the basis of faith, then you are coming to him on the foundation of grace because human efforts come by the law. Faith comes by grace. They go hand in hand. Works and law, faith and grace. But where people get into trouble is they try to mix them. They try to mix law and grace, and they rob law of its terror and grace of its freeness. And God doesn't want you to rob the law of its terror. He does want it to terrify you, to drive you to, to despair, as we're going to see in a minute. But grace must be kept free, something that you accept as a gift by faith. Now, what is the law? I want to contrast, and you've already got this, you should have this in your mimeograph notes that we received early in the course, the one on law and grace. I want to contrast these two systems as principles in themselves. The principle of law emphasizes works. This is what law is. First of all, law emphasizes works. On the other hand, grace emphasizes faith by contrast. The principle of grace emphasizes faith. The principle of law emphasizes human works. All right, secondly, the principle of law emphasizes a fear motivation. That is, if, a, if you are living the Christian life out of fear of what a God, God will do to you if you don't do this, or fear of what a God, God will do to you if you do do that, then you're under law. 
because law operates on a fear basis, a fear motivation. However, grace operates on a love basis, a love motivation. Grace as a system has love as its basic motivation. As the Holy Spirit shows you what Christ did for you to save you, shows you of the work of the cross, of Christ on the cross, he produces, he pours out within your hearts the love of God. And that love causes you to begin to trust God. You see that you can trust him. And so, grace works on the motivation of faith. And it, grace builds a love-trust relationship between the believer and Christ. Law builds a fear-work uh, relationship. And you can have a relationship with another individual on the basis of the law principle. Do you know that? In fact, a lot of Christians do. If you have a relationship with uh, your campus director, for instance, that's based on a fear-work basis, it's under law an abomination to God. What God wants is a love-trust relationship between Christians and especially between you and Christ. All right, now law, in the third place, emphasizes a performance acceptance. In other words, if you perform according to the rules, you will be accepted. If you do not perform according to the rules, you won't be quite as accepted. Now, most, most of you, in fact, most Christians, I've found, uh, don't think they're going to lose salvation if they don't perform. But where they really get hung up and under law is they think, well, you know, if I don't do this and this today, God won't love me quite as much as he did yesterday. Or my acceptance with God is not quite as good as it was. And so... You have the idea that performance is that which builds your acceptance with God. However, under grace, grace says you start out completely accepted and that you cannot improve that acceptance. It's perfect. Christ is perfect. You're in Christ, therefore you're accepted. That's the basis of, of the whole thing with God. Ephesians 1, 6 says you are accepted in the Beloved. The Beloved is Christ. You can't improve that acceptance, so therefore you start off being accepted and you are free to trust the Holy Spirit to work for God because of a love motive. Yes. I will when we get to that. We're not to that yet. We're not to that time yet. If you'll bring that up when I get over the work of the Holy Spirit, then I will. All right, in the third place, law, said, uh, uh, law depends upon the flesh. That is your efforts. Grace depends upon the Holy Spirit working in you. Now, there will be production under grace. In fact, a lot more production than under, under law. But the thing is, the work that, that occurs is the result of walking in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, not vice versa. 
It's not you doing something in order to qualify to be filled with the Spirit. And that's what most people do. They say, well, if I could just totally yield myself to Christ, I'd be filled with the Spirit. So they're saying that in the flesh, they must totally yield their old sinful nature to Christ before they can be filled with the Spirit. Well, if you could do that, who needs the Holy Spirit? You ever stop to think about that? If you could do that in the flesh, why in the world do you need the Holy Spirit? It's impossible. But the law emphasizes the works of the flesh. And this is what is meant in Galatians 3, verses 1 through 5. Let's turn there for a minute. Boy, I'll tell you, Paul is real hard on legalists. And the epistle to the Galatians labels legalism what it is, a perversion of the gospel. You see, the gospel includes not just the way of of salvation, it includes the way of living the Christian life. That It's all the good news. It's all one package. And if you pervert how to live the Christian life, it's perverting the gospel. And Paul says, look out. You know what you're doing. If you really know what you're doing and understand what you're doing, you're accursed. And so in Galatians 3, verses 1 through 5, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, he's talking about the fact that they had seen the finished works of Christ. They had it clearly expla uh, explained to them. And that's the foundation of the Christian life. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law? The V is not in the original, so exit out. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by hearing with faith? In other words, when the Holy Spirit came to dwell within you, did he come to dwell in you, you because you kept the law perfectly or because you just believed the message of the gospel? Well, they had to admit the Holy Spirit came into us because we just accepted what Christ did for us. So he says, all right. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, if you were given eternal life, you were given a new nature, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you, and all of that simply by grace through faith, which means grace means God gave it with no strings attached. Faith means you simply accepted it as a gift. Then if all of that happened on the, on the basis of faith, then what makes you think that now you've been equipped where you can help God live the Christian life? And so he says, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he, and he refers to Jesus, notice it's capitalized, does Jesus then, who provides you with a spirit, and the word provide is a word in the Greek which means to lavishly supply, the word of lavish supply. Does Jesus then who lavishly supplies you with the Spirit and works miracles in you, not among you, it's talking about individuals, not a group, with the Spirit and works miracles in you, do it by the works of law or by hearing with faith? In other words, Paul saw the miracles that were worked in their character. 
And he says, now did those miracles occur by works of law or by faith? The fact that we accept, is that not a work of the Holy Spirit? Yes, it is. Well, we respond, but there's been someone working on us when we do. In other words, we're not robots, but we still are worked upon by the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, he's simply bringing out the contrast between law and grace. And what Paul shows here, and this is where the key issue is about law and grace. God says, either you live the Christian life or I will live the Christian life through you, through the Holy Spirit. But don't ask me to help. I won't do it. If you want to help, then he says, all right, you do it, and here's the law to give you the standards to do it. But if you, uh, if you want me to do it, then you just trust me to do it, and I'll do it. But don't mix them. You can't. You see, for a person to pray, Lord, help us, that's absolutely wrong. Now, I understand that today we don't really stop and think about these things, but try to, uh, try to correct your prayer vocabulary, will you? Don't ask God to help you. You know what that implies? That implies, okay, God, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to give it the old college try and then you make up the difference, okay? And that assumes that you can do it, but you just need a little help. Now, grace says the Holy Spirit will do it as you moment by moment depend upon him, as you believe what God says the Holy Spirit will do in you what he wants. All right, now, that's the difference between law and grace. Now, if you're under the principle of grace, as I've outlined there, the meaning of grace, then, you, then sin will not have be master over you but if you're under law any point of that then sin will be master over you all right now let's see about the law what is the meaning of the law romans chapter 7 why did god give the law to me the christian in verse 7 we see the first purpose of god giving the law to me the christian now, these purposes, as I've said before, are as true to the non-Christian as they are to the Christian. They're the same for either the non-Christian or the Christian, except that at the end there's a difference. One brings me to believe in Christ, the other brings me to depend upon the Holy Spirit. But here are the four purposes of the law. And my apologies to you who were in my Romans class this morning. You have to hear this again. But we just happen to be on the same subject at the same time. All right. Purpose number one. God gave the law to define sin and reveal the sin nature. God gave the law to define sin and reveal the sin nature. Verse 7, Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin... May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, in your New American Standards, look over 
uh, under Roman numeral 2 and 3. You notice that the substitute translation of covet is lust, and that's the best translation, actually. The original word in the Greek means to lust, and it's usually uh, to lust after something sexually. And so Paul is giving us an autobiography here of a problem he had as a young Christian. What we have in Romans 7 is actually, from, from verse 7 on, an autobiography of something that happened in Paul's life when he was a young believer. Uh, he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about lusting if the law had not said, You shall not lust. All right, so it, it defined what sin is. Second, verses 8 through 11. The second purpose of the law is to make me sin more. To make me sin more. Now, let's see how this happens. But sin, now that's talking about the nature of sin. It's in the singular here. But the sin nature, taking opportunity through the commandment, Produced in me coveting or lusting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, the sin nature became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to be to result in death for me. All right, now here is the incident. Notice he says in verse 8, Apart from the law, sin is dead. If you don't have a law around, the sin nature doesn't gain momentum and gain control over you. But I want to bring a very important point out here that I think needs to be very clear in your mind. Just to remove law is not the answer. Now, this is what the psychiatrist says today, the non-Christian psychiatrist. He says, well, look, You've got a problem here. You've got this tremendous guilt complex, and this guilt complex is causing all kinds of problems in your heart and life. So what we need to do is get rid of the standard. Now, they've got part of a true principle there. That's part of a truth. So they begin to do away with a standard. But I want to tell you something. God is not doing that because there's a whole truth. Now, he does, he does say, apart from the law, sin is dead, and you must be delivered from the law. But you must be delivered from the law in order that you can walk in the Spirit. And if you leave walking in the Spirit off, you've got anarchy. So we're not just saying, get rid of the law, and that's the answer. We're saying, get rid of the law and walk in the Spirit. That's the answer. But what happened with Paul happened to me as a young believer. In verse 9, when he says, I was once alive apart from the law, I know exactly what he's talking about. And this hasn't happened just once. I've had a few experiences of this, and I'm sure you have too. But you see, in Acts chapter 9, Paul tells us that he was filled with the Spirit three days after he was a believer. Ananias told him how to walk in the Spirit, told him how to walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So he was alive in the sense, this means operationally alive in the Christian life. There's an operational life and there's operational death in the Christian life. 
To be operationally alive is to be walking in the Spirit. To be operationally dead is to be walking in the flesh. And you're going to see this contrast in Romans 8, verses 5 through 16. So this death is not talking about spiritual death, physical death, or the second death. It's talking about the experience of walking in the flesh. You're at that point operationally dead because nothing you're doing is counting for eternity. But he says, I was operationally alive for a while. That means he was walking in the Spirit. Now, I remember when I was in, uh, a young believer for about a little over the first year I was a Christian. I lived part of that time in New Orleans. And uh, I continued to live in the French Quarter where I'd lived for the past something like five years after I became a believer. And I had lots of problems. I was up and down. But there was one thing for sure. Christ was in my life, and there were some, some inner changes taking place in my desires, my deep-rooted desires about life. And I could see that, and there was a love for Christ that was growing and so forth. But I didn't have victory. I was up and down. And finally, uh, I wound up back in Houston, Texas, and someone got me over to Baraka Church there under Bob Thiem, and after a few weeks under him, I learned what it was to depend upon the Holy Spirit for power and guidance and so forth. I learned that I was, that's what I was supposed to do. And I was doing great after that. I mean, my life took off like a skyrocket. And uh, all kinds of things good were happening in my life, and I found consistency in my life for the first time. But after a while of living like that, uh, I have, you know, we all have certain areas of weakness. Every one of you has an area of weakness. Now, your area of weakness is probably not the same as mine, but I know you've got one. And my particular area of weakness happened to be the area where the law hit me. So after I was walking along in victory for a while, a friend of mine named Roy Thompson came along. He said, Hal, let's go over to Galveston and take a swim. So we drove over and went to the beach, had a great time of fellowship down, going down and talking about the Lord. Got out on the beach, and I hit the beach, and we started walking over to find a place to sun, and all of a sudden my eyes fell on a bikini. And right away, my conscience said, Oh, no, you don't. That's wrong, and it is wrong. Conscience was doing a good job. And so I began to get convicted because I was having that temptation. And you see, that's the first thing I needed to learn. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's only a sin when you don't, uh, don't uh, keep trusting the Holy Spirit to deal with it. So I, I was having a problem with this. I tried to look the other way, you know, and about that time the law hit. Like a clap of thunder in my mind, I heard the words, you've heard it said in the law, you shall not commit adultery, but I say if you look after one with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart already. And so, boy, then I really started saying, man, this is wrong. I've got to look the other way, you know. But the harder I tried to suppress this temptation, the worse it got. 
So, boy, I looked in the water, and all I could see was bikinis. And uh, I looked at the sand, and one eyeball was going after a bikini. I put a magazine up in front of my face and tried to think about other things and read the magazine, and another eye was straying off of the, after a bikini. Now, girls, I know this is not a weakness for you, but, I mean, you know, just apply it in the area of anger. Some girl bugs you. You've got this roommate. You know you're supposed to love her. And you find that you're, you, there are times when they come in and you're just bugged with them, and then the law comes and says, Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. So you start trying to love her. Then what happens? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know what gives I said now wait a minute I'm supposed to know about the power of the Holy Spirit why didn't it work so then I began to see that what I had done was put myself under the law I was trying uh, first of all I set the commandment up as the, uh, as the objective rule then I started seeking to keep that rule by asking the Holy Spirit to help me. That's in actuality what happened. I saw this objective rule and I started asking the Holy Spirit to help me suppress this monster inside of me. Now, I never had a siege like that in all my life as a non-Christian. In fact, that was a new experience. I never had a problem like that. And God allowed it to happen as he allowed it to happen in Paul. And I found instead of being... Uh, alive walking in the spirit I was dead as far as production was concerned man I was in a battle and I wasn't winning well that's what the law does the minute you start trying to keep objective rules and you set them up and then by you you start you see the rule and that takes your eyes off of the sufficiency of the spirit you start trying to suppress temptation this will happen now this is true not only of the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount or anything like that it's especially true of, of uh, the rules and regulations that a church or a college might put up. You know, thou shalt not drink, thou shalt not smoke. I know we had the big five when I was uh, a kid in Texas, church I attended. Thou shalt not smoke, thou shalt not drink, thou shalt not dance, thou shalt not go to movies, and thou shalt not gamble. And I'm not saying these things are right, But what I am saying is the way to deal with them is not just to set up a law. Listen, man's problem is not that he doesn't know what to do. It's that he doesn't have the power to do what he knows he ought to do. And you set up a law, it just puts him over to trying in the flesh to keep it with good intention. But sincerity doesn't get it in salvation or in the Christian life. And so the second purpose of the law is to make me sin more. And that's what happens. You set up, I don't care whether it's thou shalt not smoke or whether it's thou shalt not lust. You set that up as the objective and then start trying to keep it, even saying, well, Holy Spirit, help me. You're still going to find that you just get worse and worse. Now, it might not be true in certain areas, but it'll sure be true in the areas where you have weakness, that is, in your areas of weakness. And so this results in the third purpose of the law. The third purpose of the law is in verses 15 through 25. 
In verse 24 it says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? The result in the third purpose is that the law will drive us to despair. First, it reveals what sin is. It makes me sin more. And then it drives me to despair. Romans 7.24 is in the conclusion of what Paul finds here. Here's the great apostle Paul, the one who took the gospel to the outer limits of the Roman Empire in one generation. And yet he is, he is crying out and saying, man, suicide's the only way out. Because this is talking about suicide here. I mean, he was at the point of despair where he was considering it, apparently. He said, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He was really in despair. When a person says, how, what's the first prerequisite to living the Christian life? I say, get desperate. Now, here's what I mean by that. The law is to drive us to utter despair of self-effort. Now, God could tell you, as he does in a few places, look, look, son, look, daughter, you belong to me, but you cannot produce a life that I can accept in yourself. It's, it's impossible for you. But you know what we'd do? We'd say, oh, sure, we agree with that, and then we'd go off and try to do it. That's what we do. Because just telling us that we can't keep God's law doesn't convince us. And so God just, just lets us go, and he, he lets us try the law. He says, all right, you want to come to me by your efforts? All right, here. Get yourself under the law real good and try it. And after we try to keep it, we find that the old nature, we don't even understand what's happening. The old nature just rebels against the law, and the law makes us sin more. Then we're driven to utter despair, and then we despair of any effort to keep God's law. We see it's proven in our experience this time that we can't do it. The law shows us that we just can't do anything to live a victorious Christian life. And that is the most important thing you can ever learn. You must be driven to that point where you see you can't do anything to live the Christian life. Then is the fourth purpose of the law. Once we have been driven to despair of self-effort, as Paul was when he said, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Then the law drives us to utter faith in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. But you see, this is what I was talking about on this chart. The means of living the Christian life is faith, but you can't believe God until you see that you can't do it yourself. Faith means to, com to stop depending on self completely and then just depend upon the Holy Spirit with simple faith. So God has to remove that negative before he can accentuate the positive. And the law drives me to that faith so that I look from self-sufficiency to Christ and Christ says, all right, child, the Spirit's already in you and he's there to produce what I want. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at this principle and we pray that the Holy Spirit will make it understandable in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for tomorrow, I want you to thoroughly study Romans 8, verses 1 through 16, Galatians 5, verses 
13 through 22. This concludes Hal Lindsey's lecture on Doctrines of Salvation number 16, Means of the Christian Life. Please use the fast forward to the end of this tape. Thank you.